You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. Happy Easter! We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us an Easter Sunday message titled, From Death to Life. Let's check it out. Good morning. Well, good morning, Word of Life. It's great to be able to be here, celebrate Easter with everybody. Uh, I do want to make sure I pull everyone's attention. Yesterday, right here in this building, we had Easter Feaster. If you were able to be a part of this, you'll know it was a great family event. Tons of people came out. We had a great time. But I want to take a moment and I want to show some appreciation for everybody that volunteered and made yesterday happen because it takes a lot of hard work. So come on, let's thank everybody. So grateful. Appreciate the hard work that went into that. And then, as you've already heard multiple times in service, one day to feed the world next Sunday. Can't wait for you to hear all the Convoy of Hope has been up to, all the different ways that they're helping people all over the world, right here in the U.S. and anywhere and everywhere you can imagine. Help is needed. Convoy of Hope, it is making it their mission to go and be a solution. So glad you're uh, able to be a part of that. And hopefully next week, you're going to hear some great stuff that inspires everybody. Sound like good? Good plan? All right, happy Easter. He is risen. Amen. This is the most important day in the calendar for Christians. We celebrate and we remember that Jesus conquered the power of sin and death once and for all. And it's all started on Good Friday. The first Good Friday, that's where Jesus, he was brutally crucified publicly in shame and in disgrace. The Bible tells us that after he had breathed his last, a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, he arranged with Pontius Pilate to take Jesus' body off of the cross and to wrap him in linen and bury him in a new tomb. Some of the women who'd followed Jesus, they watched all of this happen and even saw where the body was laid and watched as a giant stone was rolled across the entrance to seal the tomb. That evening, they gathered the supplies needed to prepare the body, which was typical in first century Jewish customs. And they tended to the body to help it stay preserved. But the next day on the Saturday, the same religious leaders who had manipulated and deceived the Romans so they would crucify Jesus, they went to Pilate and asked him to secure the tomb with Roman soldiers. On Sunday morning, the same women who watched Jesus be placed in the tomb, they took the burial spices and the supplies to tend to his body. And along the way, they asked each other how they were ever going to roll the giant stone away from the tomb, which was a fair question. Typically, the Romans would roll a giant stone down a a slight slope uh, in front of the tomb to seal it up. And of course, it's much easier to roll a giant stone down a hill than up a hill. But as they arrived, they saw the stone wasn't going to be a problem. As they got closer, they saw it had been rolled away. And as they approached, they saw angels in the tomb. And one of them said, he is not here for he is risen. He is not here, for he is risen. These eight words, they describe the centerpiece moment to the biblical story. These eight words have changed the world. For hundreds of millions of people, these eight words have changed their entire lives. He is not here, for he is risen. On all of our Easter invites and the banners that we have outside of the building for the past month, there's the phrase, from death to life. From death to life. The empty tomb of Jesus will forever be the ultimate display of going from death to life. Peter talked about it this way in the book of Acts. You nailed him to a cross and killed him, but God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, there's the promise that you and I can move from death to life. 
This means that the news of this single event that happened thousands of miles away 2,000 years ago is the greatest news you and I could ever hear. In this portion I'd like to share with you, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And he's talking about water baptism and he's using it as a way of helping people understand this idea of going from death to life. In Romans 6, starting through verse 3. Have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. My friends, the message of Easter is that we can go from death to life. We can leave behind the destructive and devastating things in our life and we can embrace the life that God has for us. This is not just a good idea or a nice sounding sentiment, but this is true, deep, and sincere life change. We can die to the old and destructive and come alive to the new. It's the promise that in Jesus, we can live free, forgiven, with a sense of peace, hope, and a purpose, with a clear conscience, and an indescribable joy. In short, in Jesus, we can know life. And we need this message today as much as any other time in human history. We are a part of a generation, you and I, that is more tired, exhausted, stressed, weighed down, anxious, confused, aimless, and addicted, more so than any generation that has ever gone before us. Don't you see so much weariness in the world around you? Maybe it's in your life, or maybe it's in the life of someone around you. Don't you see people weighed down by life, people feeling crushed under the pressure that they face every day? Don't you see people struggling to make sense of life? Don't you see people confused and angry? Don't you see people drifting without aim or purpose? Don't you see half the country blaming the other half of the country for the country being divided? Don't you see a country and a nation and a culture that is more complicated and divided than anything we would have thought possible just 20 years ago? And to our culture, to our generation, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am gentle, humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now I believe this passage is deeply necessary for this generation. This generation that you and I are a part of, this passage speaks directly to what is at the very heart of the hurt and the concern and the worry and the stress that we are all feeling. Now, you may disagree with me. You may look around and believe that there isn't a widespread problem of being weary and beaten up by life. If this isn't what you see every day, if instead what you see is our culture overflowing with joy, if what you see is that peace and positivity is spreading, then you might find the rest of what I'm going to say today to be irrelevant and unimportant. But if your experience is anything like mine, and you see hurting people all day long, 
You find yourself watching friends and loved ones wake up every day to a struggle with no sign of a breakthrough. If you watch the world around us and you see pressure and strife and frustration and confusion and anxiety and stress and it is only growing and growing and it feels like it is getting worse and not better, then what Jesus has to say is worth listening to because Jesus is inviting us to embrace and experience something different. This passage that I just read to us, it makes three assumptions. The first assumption is that people are tired for good reason. People are tired for good reason. This was originally taught and the people that Jesus were originally talking to 2,000 years ago, these were tired, worn out people. The second assumption is that these tired, worn out people are carrying too much. That the pressure that people are feeling, the struggles that they're muscling through, it's more than what is reasonable for a person to be carrying. And the third thing is that we're listening to proud and angry people too much that the loudest and most influential voices in culture and society, they're not humble and gentle like Jesus, but rather in contrast, they're proud and angry. I wanna spend some time considering that in a moment. But I wanna look at this idea of us being tired and carrying too much. What Jesus says is, you, are, uh, you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. A heavy burden is of course the weight of whatever it is that you're carrying. Whatever it is that is too much for you or I to be carrying, that's a burden, that is a heavy burden, it is the weight of whatever you're carrying. But this word weary, it speaks to time. I don't remember if um, anyone else here, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you had this great idea of getting in shape and getting abs. And you did P90X. Anybody else? Okay, anyone else? Okay. It was right around the time the movie 300 came out, which was a complete coincidence that everyone wanted to get in shape. But in P90X, if you ever made the mistake of doing it, Tony Horton, uh, the guy who led the thing, he had this phrase that he would say on almost every one of those workout videos, is that you can do anything for 30 seconds. Anyone remember that? You can do anything for 30 seconds, and then he would ask you to do some impossible pose that ripped your hamstring apart. <laughs> now I proved him wrong that in fact you cannot do things for 30 seconds, anyway. But people don't get weary because of doing something for 30 seconds. You don't become weary because you had a bad event. You don't become weary because you had a tough weekend. You become weary because you've been dragging around a weight that is too heavy for a long, long time. Weariness comes from time. To be weary means you're exhausted because you've been carrying a heavy weight for a long time which means that this is a call from Jesus. This is an invitation to people who have been carrying too much for too long. People are working tirelessly, but it feels like they're not achieving anything. The yoke is difficult, and what you're dragging behind you is heavy. The pressure of day-to-day -day life might be exhausting. The responsibilities you carry might be breaking your back, and Jesus comes, and he shows a different way. I believe as I listen to the stories of people both in and out of the church that people are ready for the message of Jesus as much as ever before. And Jesus, he offers himself as three alternatives to people who are tired, to people that are carrying too much and are being influenced by proud and angry people. Jesus offers himself as the alternative. He stands in contrast to what we're experiencing today. To the tired, he promises rest. Now the religious demands of the first century Jewish people are an obvious comparison. 
Matthew 23, just to flesh out this idea, it says, they crush people, talking about the religious leaders, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. But this clearly isn't the only kind of weariness, this isn't the only kind of burden that Jesus is appealing to. Everything and anything that weighs us down is being addressed as Jesus is teaching. In contrast to life weighing us down, Jesus promises rest. And secondly, to those carrying too much, he offers partnership. He offers partnership. He joins us. The yoke means partnership. Now, a yoke, I'm certainly not a farmer, and I'm most definitely not a farmer from the first century. But a yoke, if you will, is almost like a harness that would help you pull something heavy. And a yoke is a double harness. The a yoke specifically was to join two animals together in farming. You, you could say a double harness. But the yoke meant that you could have the effort of two animals pulling the plow or whatever else behind them. And it's easy to imagine that having the two animals working together was more effective than just having the one animal. So you would have a yoke, and the way the yoke would work is that it would make sure that the two animals could work together in tandem. It wasn't one animal dragging something and then one animal, no, you would have a yoke and that way you would be able to harness the energy and you'd be able to harness the power of two animals dragging something heavy, typically it would be ox. You'd have two ox dragging a plow or something heavy and it'd be far more effective and it was only possible because of the yoke, but it partnered two animals together. That's the purpose of having a yoke is to partner together. And here, Jesus is asking us to take his yoke upon us. He's asking us to put a yoke on ourselves and be partnered with him. And he's telling us that his yoke is easy. This is an invitation to have my life in lockstep with Jesus, to be metaphorically harnessed together, moving together, working together. It's a partnership. Instead of trying my best to figure all this out, I get to do it with Jesus. It's being yoked with him. He graciously gives this invitation. It's amazing. And what I keep reminding myself of is that I bring nothing to this partnership. He doesn't need my strength. He doesn't need my skills or my gifting or my wisdom. But I am very aware that I need his. And thirdly, to those who are sick of the most influential and loudest voices being angry and prideful, he tells us his teaching is humble and gentle. And we can listen to him instead. My friends, there is an opportunity to make an exchange. We can exchange being tired for finding rest. We can exchange carrying too much to having a partnership with Jesus where he helps us through every single season of life. We can exchange listening to proud and angry people to listening to him and he is humble and gentle. And how Jesus gives us these three things, we can either choose to accept or reject the solution to all of this that Jesus offers in this passage the solution to being weary is found in accepting three things. Firstly, Jesus' invitation, come to me. Secondly, we can accept his partnership. Take my yoke upon you. And we can accept Jesus' teaching. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. When I think of why I should listen to Jesus' teaching, my head instantly goes to, because he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. We should most definitely listen to him. But interestingly, in this passage, Jesus says we should listen to him because he's humble and gentle at heart. He's humble and gentle at heart, which is in contrast to the most prominent voices that are almost always proud and angry. This is something that you and I can identify with today. 
If all of the proud and angry people were kicked off social media or news outlets, the internet would suddenly become very quiet. If every single proud and angry politician was fired tomorrow, DC would be a very quiet place. If every proud and angry celebrity would keep their opinions to themselves, award shows would be a lot shorter. <laughs> Jesus' teaching has always stood in defiance of what the world says. Jesus has always stood in defiance of popular opinion. Jesus' teaching has always been contrary to pride and anger. The words of Jesus, his values, his wisdom, his promises, it cuts through selfishness and toxicity. Maybe for our own well-being, it's worth spending less time listening to news outlets or social media influencers or celebrity or politicians that are typically driven by pride and anger, and instead we take Jesus seriously. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. The pride and the anger, it isn't working. It isn't promoting peace and joy. To find rest, it's time to listen to the teaching of Jesus. And the promise is, I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now over the scope of the whole Bible, the promise is not that life with Jesus will be nothing but bliss and good times. In other parts of the Bible, Jesus taught that we need to daily take up our cross and that we're blessed for suffering for our faith. And Jesus assures us in another passage that trials and hardships will come. But here we're given an invitation that we don't deserve. We're offered a partnership that we contribute nothing to. And we are taught a better way because we cannot figure it out for ourselves. My friends, doing difficult things with Jesus is better than doing our best by ourselves. The solution to being weary is found in accepting three things. Accepting Jesus' invitation, accepting Jesus' partnership, and accepting Jesus' teaching. Then Jesus said, come to me all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. It was maybe um, 10 years ago, Meg and I were living in New York City. If you've been a part of the church for a while, you've heard me talk about New York City and some stories from our time there. But I became really good friends and still really good friends with uh, a guy who was a native of New York City and he grew up in Queens. And one day we were just sort of going around his old neighborhood in Queens and stopping off at various hot spots. And you know, he took me to get the best sandwiches I've ever had in Whitestone, Queens, a place called Cherry Valley. If Cherry Valley wants to sponsor Word of Life Church and give us free food for any of our events, we'll talk. But he would take me to all these different hotspots and, you know, sort of show me the old neighborhood. And we made the stop off at this butcher's in Queens. And we stopped off at this butcher's and he goes in and he says to the guy, like, hey, how you doing? You know, I hadn't seen him in forever. I was like, hey, it's good to see you. And so we ended up sitting down at this sort of small table, just the three of us. And my friend was like, hey, this butcher, he's a Christian. He's one of the only Christians I knew when I was growing up. And so he said, hey, why don't you tell Tom the story about how you got saved? And this guy, I don't want to make a wild guess, but I would say he was at least in his 70s. And so he started to tell me about how he got saved. And in the 80s, he was a big-time drug dealer in the city. And he was a big-time drug dealer. And one of the deals that he was a part of went bad. And because the deal went bad, there was someone that he now, the butcher, he had a vengeance on. He wanted to get revenge on somebody. And so he decided he was going to kill the person who had done wrong to him. But three times, the plot to kill him went wrong. The first time, he couldn't get his vehicle to start. The second time, the gun jammed. And the third time, when he went to go and do what he planned to do, the person wasn't there. 
And then that week, he heard the message of Jesus. Hardened criminal, on his way to go kill somebody. And this guy heard this message of Jesus. And he decided that the only way he could live with peace, the only way he could live with a clear conscience, was he turned himself in to the police. Just turned up to the police station and said, hey, here's all the junk that I've done. They were so grateful, he went in and confessed everything, they gave him 10 years in jail. But he said, I came out. My conscience was clear. I knew I'd done the right thing. And I was ready to embrace life that Jesus had for me. And decades later, he is still strong in his faith. He's making a difference in his community. Now, without the resurrection, <laughs> without the resurrection, this promise of going from death to life, this promise of finding rest and rest for our souls in Jesus, without the resurrection, it's just something that some guy said 2,000 years ago. But if the resurrection happened and we accept Jesus' invitation, it's life-changing. If we accept the promise of rest, if we accept the invitation to a partnership with Jesus, the chance to listen to his teaching about the loudest and proudest voice around us, it only means anything if the resurrection truly happened. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the whole Christian message. Of all the things that could be debated and argued about the Bible, the resurrection is the single most important. Of all the things around religion or spirituality, I would suggest that the single most important discussion is whether the resurrection really happened. Now, to the best of my knowledge, there is no serious argument disagreeing that during the first century, there was a man named Jesus from Nazareth, who was a teacher, who gathered a following and was later crucified by the Romans in Jerusalem, but three days later, his body was not in the tomb. From all I've heard and read, there is no historian or scholar who makes a serious dispute that Jesus was alive, died by crucifixion, and that three days later, the tomb where his body was placed was empty. Now, this is verified by not only the four gospel writers, but also additional historical sources. By the standards used by secular historians, this point is not disputed. Jesus gathered a large following, was killed by the Romans on a cross, and three days later, his tomb was empty. That is accepted by historians, both Christian and secular. Now, you will always find an extremist on YouTube. But the serious scholars agree that Jesus' body was not in the tomb. The question remaining is, why was the tomb empty? The empty tomb is not disputed. Why it was empty is the only issue left on the table. If you were here last week, we spent time looking at Jesus telling people numerous times that he was going to be crucified and raised from the dead. If that's what actually happened, it's the single most important event in all of history. If this really happened, if the Son of God was crucified and then resurrected, then there is nothing else that was ever happened or will ever happen that is more important than that. But if it was empty for any other reason, then we have to ask why we would pay any attention to this moment at all. So questioning what could have happened to Jesus' body is worthwhile. Now, there are a handful of ridiculous YouTube theories that are very easy to dismiss. The first thing is that Jesus didn't actually die. Now, the Romans weren't known for being inefficient at crucifixion. But this also assumes that despite being beaten and scourged within an inch of your life, that someone could hang on a cross for hours, be presumed dead by the Roman soldiers, 
and the people who handled the body also presumed him dead, then be laid in a tomb, and then survive for three days with no food, no water, in the Middle Eastern heat, and then find the strength to roll aside the giant stone that covered the tomb, walk into town, and then appear to your friends without needing medical attention. The injuries from the whipping and the scourging alone would likely kill you after three days. After three days of no food and water in the Middle Eastern sun, I don't know if anyone could survive that. And then there's the crucifixion itself. The idea that Jesus didn't actually die and survive this is not something that historians, even if they don't believe Jesus is Lord and Savior, they don't take this seriously. The second one is even better. The second idea is that all the eyewitnesses were having the same hallucination. Now, if there was just one report of Jesus' resurrection, then this idea that the one person hallucinating might be taken seriously. But we all know that multiple people having the same hallucination doesn't line up. Now, the third one, this is my personal favorite, is that Jesus had a twin brother that no one knew about. <laughs> now, I, I'd never heard of this until this past week. But apparently, there are people who legitimately suggest that Jesus had a secret twin brother. My head went to this really old, cheesy episode of Knight Rider, and David Hasselhoff had an evil twin brother, and you knew he was evil because he had a mustache. <laughs> it's obviously silly. And when else would you accept the suggestions that this is the explanation for what's going on with the resurrection? Now, there are some theories that aren't foolish, but rather assume that there were mistakes. There's a, a suggestion that when the disciples went to the tomb, that they actually went to the wrong tomb, that the women went to a different tomb than the one Joseph had laid Jesus in. Another one is that the body was missing and that Jesus was laid in a mass grave for criminals, and so they couldn't find his body among the others. Basically, there was a mistake about where the body was supposed to be. Now, if this is the confusion, if this is the point of conversation, I don't know how you go from this and then suddenly, like, you know what, maybe he just came back to life. Like, that's quite a leap to go from A to B. And all someone would have to do, if they wanted to refute this, all the enemies of Jesus would have to do to under, underpin that, no, that's obviously not true, is they would start saying things like, yeah, but you guys went to the wrong tomb. It would be easy enough to prove. You could point out, well, yeah, you can't find the body. It's amongst the mass grave. It would be so easy for someone to refute this if this was all based on a mistake. And not only that, but the same people who are supposed to be unable to locate Jesus' dead body are the very same people who are claiming to have seen him alive and resurrected after he had died publicly. With all the other information we're given and everything else the historians take into account, this simply doesn't hold weight. There being a mistake or a mix-up, it doesn't explain the empty tomb. The most reasonable theory that the resurrection never happened is that Jesus' followers, the disciples, they took Jesus' body from the tomb so they could falsely claim he was resurrected. This is apparently the explanation believed by the contemporaries of the New Testament writers. In Matthew 28 and verse 11, as the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, the Roman soldiers that were supposed to be guarding the tomb, you must say Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and they stole his body. If the governor, torn by Pilate, hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews and they still tell it today. Now did you catch that? Among many of Jesus' own people, 
This was the story that was believed, that the disciples came and took the body. The most popular and most sensible argument that the resurrection never happened is that Jesus' disciples took the body, hid it, made it look like he had been raised from the dead so they could continue his ministry and mislead people into a renewed sense of passion because they wrongly believed that he had been raised to life. Now there's a reason I find it impossible for me to accept that this is the answer. The reason I find this impossible to accept is that there's the account of eyewitnesses. Let me take this through this, starting in 1 Corinthians. This is Paul, the apostle, writing. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. I also saw him. Me, the person writing the letter. I saw him. Now I cannot accept the theory that the disciples conspired to fake Jesus' resurrection because his followers are claiming to be eyewitnesses. Paul is claiming to be an eyewitness. I also saw him is what we just read. He also says that there's more than 500 people who can verify and are also eyewitnesses. Claiming to be an eyewitness and saying there's hundreds of other eyewitnesses, this has consequences. If there's hundreds of people who can validate this, it's difficult to pull off a conspiracy. This is an invitation to find someone who will be able to confirm that what they would say is, yes, I also saw him. And if there's hundreds, it's not only, yes, I also saw him, but it's also, and he saw him, and he saw him, and she saw him, and oh, my brother saw him, and my cousin saw him, and my wife's co-worker, um, you know, her boss saw him. And on and on it goes. It's an invitation. It's an appeal to go and validate and verify. The appeal to eyewitnesses changes things. Now, very importantly... It's not just Paul who says this. It's not only Paul who says he was an eyewitness. We also have this from John. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We also have Peter writing. Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we are not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. Now Luke's gospel was a project that some estimate took three years to complete. And Luke claims to have tracked down eyewitnesses to get an accurate account. This is the very beginning of the letter, Luke 1.1. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the earliest disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have decided to write an accurate account. The claim of being an eyewitness is very important. The claim is not, we overheard something. They're not saying that someone told us a really good story about Jesus. But people are saying, they're writing it down. We saw it for ourselves. It also explains how this turned into an international movement very quickly. But they saw him for themselves. 
by saying it like this, by putting yourself and positioning yourself and telling people, I am an eyewitness to the resurrection, it means that it cannot be a mistake. Because the, we're not telling people that what we think is what happened, and this is what we overheard is what happened, and this is what the rumor is about what happened, and this is what my neighbor said is what happened. They're saying, I saw this. A resurrection is just as miraculous and unexpected today as it was 2,000 years ago. This is a declaration that would have been scrutinized then just as much as it would today. And people are willing to stake their reputation on this miracle being true. They're saying, this is what we saw ourselves. It's not a mistake, which means it's either the truth or it's a deliberate lie. It can't be a mistake. That option is gone. You're saying, I saw this for myself. Either the people who are willing to put their own reputation on being an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ are either telling the truth or they are actively, deliberately, and willfully telling a lie. This line of thinking, it matches how the apostles themselves talked about the resurrection. This is the same portion of the letter to the Corinthians where Paul says he saw the resurrection. It goes on a few verses later. If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. They're either intentionally and deliberately lying and misleading people, or they're telling the truth. This, my friends, begs the question, why would they lie? Why would they lie? Normally, people lie and manipulate for selfish gain. Typically, it's for sex, money, or power. But for those first disciples, there was never any thought or suggestion that this could lead to fame and glory, but rather the exact opposite. This was only going to end in being ostracized from their community and rejected by their families. It meant that they would ultimately be beaten and killed for siding with a movement that was both an enemy of Rome and an enemy of the local religious leaders. The political power often misused by the Europeans in the church didn't start happening until the fourth century. For hundreds of years, the Christians were outsiders, faithfully trying to continue the mission, often in dangerous circumstances. The idea of spreading a lie about the resurrection for anything resembling personal gain has no credibility to it at all, none. The writers of the New Testament never got fortune or glory, but rather, they received jail, death, they were ostracized from their families, and they were tortured. So I continue to ask, why would they lie? I've wondered about this for years, and I've asked the question with an open mind, ready to engage a good answer, but I've never heard one. Why would they lie about seeing him with their own eyes, about being an eyewitness to seeing the resurrected Jesus? What's obvious is that they believed it. So much so that they not only gave their lives to stand up for what they believed, but they lived with an unrelenting mission to let the world know that there is a Savior who died and rose again so that the power of sin and death would be defeated. This is similar to me walking into a police station and asking them what un unsolved crimes do you have? And then them listing off a few and then me saying, yeah, I did those. And then them looking like, oh, that means you have to go to jail now. Sounds similar to my friend in Queens. And me just saying, yeah, okay, that's fine. If that were the story, if I just turned up to jail, confessed to crimes that I'd never committed, knowing that my fate was going to jail, you'd be right in saying, why on earth would you do that? And of course, it makes no sense. 
There's no rational way to accept that the disciples would willfully lie because it meant that they were facing things that no human would ever want to face. They claim to be eyewitnesses. It cannot be a mistake. They're either telling the truth or they're deliberately lying. And there is no good reason that they would lie. All of this gives me as a Christian great confidence that the resurrection of Jesus is not a faith claim based on wild and spotty hearsay, but it's a faith claim based on the most reasonable historical explanation. The angel's words, once again, he is not here, for he is risen. He is not here. That's not even disputed. The people who are eager to disprove the historical claims of Christianity are not even trying to dispute this. And they don't even try to claim that his body was actually in the tomb or that the stone was never rolled away. For us as believers, we trust and our lives are changed because we believe for he is risen. If we believe that Jesus rose from the grave, there is nothing more important than that. And one more time, I say to the church, something I say almost every week, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. Now this statement, it prompts the question of what did Jesus say about himself? Now within the four gospels, Jesus says an awful lot about himself. Here's a few quotes I wanted to share with you from John's gospel, starting with possibly the most famous Bible verse in the world, John 3:16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Chapter five, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Chapter six, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Verse, uh, chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. Chapter 11, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Of all the things that Jesus said about himself, he promised that all who believe in him can find life, not only here on earth, but also into eternity. And our message this Easter, from death to life, isn't just an empty promise. Without the resurrection, these would just be empty words but we believe that the resurrection happened, that Jesus is who he says he is, which means his words are life-changing. This means that the same invitation that Jesus has been extending to people for 2,000 years is given to each and every one of us today. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. If you believe that the resurrection of Jesus happened, then this invitation is a desperately needed relief for this tired, worn-out generation. 
the promise to find rest for our souls is something we should all want because it's something we all need. The cause of the weariness and the specifics about what is the heaviness that you're carrying is completely open-ended. The people Jesus is talking to are an oppressed people group, largely living in poverty and sickness and death was surrounding them 2,000 years ago. But there are any number of things that cause these people to be weary and any number of things that are a burden to people. The same is true for us. There's a long list of things that are causing you and I to be weary and burdened. Represented in this room are a multitude of problems and concerns and struggles and pressures that have caused weariness. We also have a huge selection of solutions that we've turned to, to try and fix this problem. Some of us may be lonely and we've let social media consume our lives to try and fix the problem. Some of us are stressed and maybe we have a few more drinks than we know we should to try and help. We may be grieving the loss of a loved one and to help, we've isolated ourselves from the world. We might have really, really good reasons to be angry and we end up lashing out at the people who love us the most. We might be worried about our children and we become controlling and overbearing. Maybe we've picked up habits that we're ashamed of and we find ourselves having to lie and cover our tracks in the hopes that we don't get caught to try and fix the problem. The pressure to fit in and find social acceptance might be so strong that we've lost any sense of identity or integrity and we compromise anything just to feel like we fit in. Fathers, it may feel like your family is running in a completely different direction than you would want. Consequently, we can give up, become passive and pretend we're fine with everything. Moms, you may worry and work tirelessly to keep the family functioning and you just keep taking on more and more, hoping that it all starts to feel better. Maybe you're drowning in financial strain and to try and stay afloat, you just take on more and more debt. Maybe you're just fighting, trying to figure out your way through life and you found yourself stuck in an addiction that you never thought you would. Maybe it's time to be brave enough to admit that these problems are real and the solutions we've tried don't work because the solution we need is the rest for our soul that only Jesus can give us. The resurrection of Jesus is the single greatest moment in all of human history. It's a faith claim based on the most reasonable historical explanation. The multiple eyewitness accounts from people who are telling others that they saw the resurrected Jesus. It leaves us wondering why they would ever possibly lie. It certainly wasn't for fortune or fame because what they got was jail being driven out of their homes and ultimately executed. If they have no reason to lie, then we can trust them to be telling us the truth. If the resurrection is indeed a true historical moment, then it changes everything. It means that Jesus truly did conquer sin and death and he is the savior of the world. This shows that the Son of God loves us so much that he would die to set us free. It means that Jesus can make bold promises and be able to keep them. It means he can extend this invitation to you and I 2,000 years after he got up out of the tomb. Come to me, all of you who are weary. Come to me, all of you who carry heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my partnership on you. Get in a partnership through life with me. Let me teach you. Let my voice be loudest in your life. Let my voice matter more than all the other voices that are clamoring for your attention because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you, you will find rest 
for your soul. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. This is an invitation to people who have been carrying too much for too long. And the solution to being weary is found in accepting three things. Accepting Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. It's found in accepting Jesus' partnership. My yoke is easy to bear. It's found in accepting Jesus' teaching. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. I got a couple of questions here. We typically do this every week. I'll have a couple of questions that hopefully will prompt some reflection and give you a chance to think and uh, sort of perhaps sort of roll through some of the things that we talked about today. If you're not in the habit of writing these down, I suggest now grab a phone, grab a piece of paper, make a note of these, and maybe Wednesday afternoon, Thursday lunchtime, you'll have a chance to think about it a little bit. The first thing I put to you is what's a heavy weight you've been carrying for a long time? What's a heavy weight you've been carrying for a long time? This might be something private that you don't want to share with anybody, and I'm certainly not telling you you have to. This is for your benefit. What is a heavy weight that you have been carrying for a long time? I'm relatively confident everyone here would have a few things to put on that list. But what's a heavy weight you've been carrying for a long time? The second question is what would change what would change if you accepted Jesus' invitation, his partnership, and his teaching? What would change? I know one thing, it wouldn't stay the same. But what would change if you accepted Jesus' invitation, partnership, and teaching? Then Jesus said, come to me. My friends, this invitation, it's everything. This invitation, come to me. That invitation is extended to you. It's extended to me. This theme is followed throughout the Bible. I want to share this with you. Verse from Revelation 3.20. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. I stand at the door. I'm extending to you an invitation. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. Would you stand with me as we pray and we go back into a time of worship? Lord, as we gather, as we pray, as we worship, as we lift you up, as we declare your goodness, Lord, I hope that that invitation, that that is rattling around in people's minds right now, that that's weighing heavy on people's minds, that you are extending an invitation. And Lord, what's our response to that? Lord, I, help you. I pray you help people respond positively to you, that they would open up the door, that they would let you come in, that they would gather and they would sit metaphorically with you as friends, and they would heal that broken relationship between themselves and God. Lord, we lift you up, we praise you, we worship you. Our trust is in you rising from the dead, conquering the power of sin and death once and for all. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, everyone, let's spend some time worshiping together.